0: I love how much faith you had in Jared, like you talked about things behind you and didn't even look once. And I could feel the temptation to like look for you. It's impressive. Oh, crud. Sitting up front, I didn't uh, realize it's a packed house, Jeff. What's going on? Merry Christmas Eve to all of y'all. Hey, good to see you. Uh, I got a couple disclaimers that would never do that before, have I? Let me start with intros and then disclaimers. Um, my name is Wayne Randolph. I am one of the teaching team members here at Liminal, also one of your pastors. Um, disclaimer one, um, I'm usually quite long-winded. I have lots of things to say, lots of connections that happen in real time in my head, and I love sharing them with you, especially if we had two to three hours, that would be incredible <laughs> for me. <laughs> um I don't have that energy uh, this season uh, to access that kind of creativity and adaptability on the spot. And so uh, for the sake of all of us today, I've written it out. Um, I think last time I gave the disclaimer that I wrote it out, it was probably a similar disclaimer, which is, um, in full disclosure, I'm over it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah awesome <laughs> oh um yeah uh I was telling Jeff earlier asking, actually asking Jeff who's also recently lost uh, a loved one the last couple years and uh I asked him like hey so all this talk about the holidays being rough and everybody talks about it, it's harder because you miss people like have you tried to outrun that as well because I've been trying to kind of mentally outrun that and uh just wondered if it if it rang true for him as well but In full disclosure to you guys, I don't think I like this season as much anymore. Um, I am adjusting to the way that the energy feels in my body, to the thoughts that I have probably every three to five minutes, if I'm being honest. Um, I'm just tired. I'm tired of feeling sad. I'm tired of not wanting to be around people. Um, And how ironic that today's sermon is on unexpected hope. So I did have a lot that I wanted to say about that, but uh, I'll stay in my lane by reading to you guys today. Uh, The other disclaimer is this, and this goes right along with confessing of having a a low personal battery, is the book that the teaching team uh, this year decided to speak from um, is entitled The First Advent in Palestine and This is already a fairly heavy book, as it is, as you can imagine. Um, Little did we know when we picked this book uh, that there would be some BS happening uh, over there. And as an idealist, that stuff just sits so heavy on me. And I guess part of the other disclosure to you guys is I have been doing my darndest to avoid any news headlines. I've been doing my darndest, I mean, I try to stay away from social media as it is, but I've been doing my darndest to stay away from it because I know that the tendency is to want to pick sides and to somehow justify why one is right and one is wrong. Um, We will be tiptoeing around some of that stuff today, but I just want to give you guys just full disclosure that so much of the content is from there. With that being said, why don't we go ahead and pray and center ourselves? So, even now, as we begin, let's go ahead and acknowledge the season that we're in. Whether you are experiencing some of the emotions that I shared with you. Maybe you're experiencing the stress of the season, the stress of making everything look right, the stress of anticipating who you're gonna hang out with, what conversations are gonna be like around the table, the stress of travel, the stress of materialism. So just take a note, recognize what's going on in your mind and your soul. And just acknowledge it. And our intention is to pause, to be present, have open and receptive hearts, and to have curious minds, and so creator God, maker of the universe, author of love, author of life. distiller of hope. We pause and acknowledge that each breath is a gift, that with each breath we are in relationship with you. I confess, God, that there is so much going on in this world not only the yuck, but there's so much shiny, interesting things to take my attention away from that which matters. Would you recalibrate our hearts, our minds, our vision, our thoughts, our actions to you and to your coming kingdom? God, I'm thankful that... uh, Love itself became flesh, walked amongst us, and showed us how the story goes. And I'm thankful for that person, Jesus, that did not come around and telling us all what to do and how to do it, but encourages us to be curious, shows us what it looks like to live in rhythm. Holy Spirit, Ruach, would you guide us in the way of Jesus? Amen. I'm gonna do my darndest to be like Jeff and not look. I even like put like slide notes just for Jared. All right, packed house. You ready? Okay doesn't take a master student of history to observe the patterns of empire. The endless cycles of the mighty and powerful battling it out until they inevitably get replaced by the mightier and the even more powerful. The violence and brutality that accompanies the verbalized hopes and slogans for a better society. The deifying of kings and rulers making them gods which only led to an even larger gap between those with power and those without. Often separated into two groups, those made in the image of God and those made to serve the image bearers. Also observable when studying empire is that there is almost always groups of people tired of occupation who attempt to rebel in some form or fashion. Quite often, we witness or learn about groups who rebel using lethal force or guerrilla tactics to counter the atrocities being done to them or their people. Now, I fully recognize that I'm an idealist. And thankfully, I've never seen war. But it doesn't take long for me to see the irony, or perhaps futility, of using the very same methods of destruction in the hopes that it will somehow solve the situation. Because of this, I've always been attracted to the third way, way—a way that emphasizes creativity, love, and forgiveness. In her book... Did it happen? Yeah. I still had to check, though. It's like I didn't trust, right? Damn it. Damn it. In her book, The First Advent in Palestine... The author, Kelly Nickendea, remembers driving around Bethlehem in the very heart of an occupied territory, where many have been seduced by the myth of redemptive violence. Banksy's art... Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let me go back. This is what happens when you have to read. <laughs> and I'm not using my glasses, thanks, Denise. Remembers driving, the author remembers driving around Bethlehem looking at all the revolutionary graffiti by the artist Banksy in the very heart of an occupied territory where many have been seduced by the myth of redemptive violence. Banksy's art and other revolutionary artists offer us a different facet of the power struggle. They offer a glimmer of hope, or maybe they just help us to ponder what hope looks like in a war-torn environment. I'm going to read an excerpt from Kelly regarding her experience of seeing Banksy's work firsthand. As I do, photos of his work will be shared on the screen. Listen carefully while I read along. Listen to her commentary. and Do your best to suspend judgment and to listen and watch with curiosity. As we drove along these narrow roads, I felt my shoulders drop and my breathing slow. There was nothing more to fear in Bethlehem than in my hometown or in any number of cities I visited, where life brims even amid political strife. Still, there was little doubt we had crossed over into another kind of terrain. The red warning signs, bulleted hold, bullet-holed walls, and uneven roads told the story of an occupied land, a less resourced place. On a subsequent visit, visit, when I returned with Claude, our taxi driver, Naif, offered to show us the Banksy graffiti painted across Bethlehem, starting with the well-known wall art of a man throwing not the Molotov cocktail you might expect, but a bouquet of flowers. I'd seen the work cropped on postcards, so the surprise of seeing it at least 10 feet tall on the side of a petrol station was awe-inspiring. Then Naif took us to a to see smaller works across the city, including one of the Mother Mary tossing hearts on a nondescript cinder wall, as well as the symbol of a dove in a flak jacket carrying an olive branch at the center of a busy intersection, each one an artistic missive scribblings a message of hope against the hard gray of occupation. After we saw the Banksy flower piece, our new friend took us to the walled-off hotel to view more artwork by the artist. At the hotel, we shared tea and bone china cups on a lovely patio an arm's length from the separation wall, the dissonance purposeful and clear. Naif told us what life was like growing up in Bethlehem before the wall. As he watched its construction cutting through Hebron Street, He became aware of the immediate and long-term separation that would prevent his family from visiting Jerusalem from that time on. We mused in hope about a day when the wall would come down like the Berlin Wall had and he could visit Jerusalem once again. I had never heard of the Waldorf Hotel. Have any of you ever heard of the Waldorf Hotel? Man, go look that up. I'm sorry I don't have a picture in here. I don't know to what extent Banksy, this artist, uh, is involved in ownership, but it is an intentional hotel overlooking the wall with intentional graffiti in every single room, juxtaposing and, uh, and calling people to look at the situation, ideally from a different light. Those pictures evoke a lot of emotion. I believe they do for me, and it seems doubled, if not tripled, uh, now magnified with what's going on, and even more reason why we need that shimmer of hope. I'll go ahead and jump into our text for the day. We'll come back to this. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So the fun part about the Magi is that there's so much mystery around them. Were they actually... From the East, where exactly were they from in the East? We're only told from the East. Uh, how many wise men are there? Our stories and nativity scenes show three. But it doesn't take much much research, much research to find out that actually there may have been as many as twelve. For today's talk, I will come from the position of the book, which is that they are from Persia or modern-day Iran. And I also hold loosely the amount of Magi that traveled west in the hopes of finding the prophesied king. But why would a group of wisdom holders and stargazers be looking for hope in an old prophecy from the Israelites? That a quick little history. In 330, before the Common Era, Alexander the Great defeated the Persians and ushered in a time of Hellenization. Western influences that smothered the local traditions, religions, and economies. Here's a quote from the book. Although subsequent generations longed for a return to the indigenous culture and Persian leadership, it did not manifest as a peasant movement against the Greek economic exploitation as it did in Palestine. Still many elites, like the Magi, carried within themselves a spirit of resistance to the Hellenization of their land. So if we follow the, the Magi as being from Persia, they are a group, a specific sect, who, known as wisdom holders, as Magi, they would hold on to many prophecies in many of the different regions and areas and lands, and they would know many of the, the oral traditions. And they would have favor. This particular group would have favor as they traveled around because of the knowledge that they had access to. So that would be, maybe not necessarily at the forefront of their mind, but this is a group that is intentionally looking for these types of signs all over their area, not just limited to Persia. Some ancients thought of stars as celestial beings. Some called magi astrologers or minders of the stars. And so the connection of stars and Magi in Matthew's narrative seems natural. Outside forces in the sky and in the east, inspired to participate in the advent of God on Earth. I will pause here for one second. In one of the uh, little bit of research that I did about the Magi is one group that thinks, considers them to be 12, and they called them the, the, salad, the silent, not salad, the silent, the silent uh, magi. Um, it is said that they came in contemplation. They have an entire uh, gospel written from their perspective, not until the third century, of course. And in their story of how they remember this going down, the star itself is Jesus. And they have this whole elaborate um, theology and cosmology that talks about a star child being born. Um, again, didn't make its way into the sermon, but something to go check out. It's an interesting facet of the diamond. The star appeared as the Magi were likely on the cusp of giving up hope that Persian culture and faith could be saved. Yet they kept looking at the skies and retelling the prophecies of an indigenous, indigenous leader coming to the throne again. When that star rose, so did their hopes. So how do they find hope in a star? For the ancient Jews, Torah is life. Their popular culture was shaped by their scriptures. These stories were what permeated their daily lives, what they talked about, what they heard in the synagogue, what they contemplated in prayer, and what they celebrated and reenacted in various feasts throughout the year. In Matthew's gospel, he assumes that he can quote l- one line from an Old Testament story or make a few simple allusions, and that his ra- readers will make the connection. Just like we do when we hear famous lines from favorite songs or movies today, or if you have kids and they only speak in meme language, <laughs> right? You could say one word and then like, go, I should put you on the spot right now. Like in the second chapter, Matthew tells of Magi from the east who see a star over Israel and come to King Herod in Jerusalem searching for the newborn king announced in the heavens above. Herod tells the Magi to look for the Christ child in Bethlehem, saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. But he doesn't really want to pay homage to the child. He just wants to know where the child is so he can kill him. When the Magi finally find the royal child, they offer him gifts fit for a king, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They fall to the ground to worship him, but instead of reporting back to Herod, they return home by another way. The story of the Magi would have sounded quite familiar to Jews in the first century. In fact, it may have sounded an awful awful lot like a remake of an old tale, which they would have heard many times before a tale of of a wicked king that tries to use magi from the east to bring harm to Jesus. But the magi do not go along with the king's plan and instead bless and honor Jesus. It would most likely remind them of a famous story from the history of Israel, the story of Balek and Balaam in the book of Numbers. Balak was a powerful and wicked king of Moab, which is modern-day Jordan who wanted to bring harm to the Israelites who had been wandering in the wilderness for a long time and were now finally approaching the promised land. Balak calls upon a man named Balem, a pagan sorcerer, or perhaps a magi from the east, to put a curse on all the people of Israel. But every time he tries to curse the Israelites, God steps in, and only words of blessing and life come out of his mouth. Instead of cursing Israel... All he can do is bless Israel. From a narrative perspective, this seems to foreshadow the events surrounding Christ's birth. In the same way that the evil king Balak attempts to employ a diviner from the east named Balaam to... I just say that name differently each time, don't I? Sorry, guys. (laughs) I even practiced it like three to six times before I started this morning. Um... Uh, so, in the same way that the evil King Balak attempts to employ a diviner from the east named Balaam to harm Israel, so the wicked King Herod tries to use the Magi from the east in his plot to discover where the child is. And just as Balaam didn't cooper- cooperate with Balak's, Balak's plan, blessing Israel instead of cursing the people, so the Magi didn't assist in Herod's plan. Instead of honoring and worshiping Jesus, Instead, they honored and worshiped Jesus and not revealed his location to Herod. But most notable is how the story of Balak and Balaam ends. After three attempts to curse Israel, Balaam continues to be taken over by the words of God, but this time utters a prophecy about some great king coming to Israel in the distant future. This is from Numbers 24, 17. I see him. But not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out rise out of Israel. Let's look at these two symbols. First, the scepter is a royal staff, symbolizing a king who will one day come to Israel. This is a quick uh, little Bible nerdy. Uh, bit here. Um, one of my Bible professors at APU used to talk about following the scepter. And as you read, because uh, you all read the Bible, I'm sure, as you read the entire narrative, all 66 books, you can actually follow the scepter uh, moving from Judah uh, all the way uh, into when the slaughtered lamb comes back in the end of Revelation. It's pretty beautiful. Also, according to this prophecy, a star will be the sign of the king's coming. That this star comes out of Jacob implies a future king of Israel. So when the Magi see the star in the direction of Israel, their coming to Jerusalem in search of a king would make perfect sense to a first-century Israelite listener. It's just what Balaam had prophesied long ago. Or, as Davies and Allison see it in their book, The Gospel According to St. Matthew, The Magi in Matthew's Christmas story are like successors to Balaam in that they worship the king who Balaam foretold many centuries ago. This is not the only connection to the Old Testament that we'll find in the Christmas stories of Matthew 2. Matthew's account of the horrific scene known known as the slaughter of the innocents is another example. Matthew tells of Herod's order to kill all the young male children in and around Bethlehem. But Jesus escapes with his parents to Egypt for a while while, only to come back to Israel after an angel appears to Joseph telling him those who sought the child's life are dead. This would most definitely remind ancient Jews of the story of Moses. Just as Jesus was born during Herod's murderous decree so Moses was born during Pharaoh's murderous declaration that every male child born to the Israelites should be thrown into the Nile River. And just as the Christ child escaped death by fleeing to Egypt, where he was raised for a bit, so the baby Moses escapes death by being raised in the highest Egyptian household, when Pharaoh's daughter takes Moses as her own. Finally, Moses returns to his fellow Israelites when God appears to him in a burning bush saying, those who sought your life are dead. These are almost the exact same words the angel spoke to Joseph when Jesus was to return to the land of Israel. Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. From the outset of Matthew's gospel and even in the birth story we see Jesus presenting as Jesus presented as a liberator, as a new hope, as a new Moses, as the light of the world which is an important paradigm for understanding what the life of Christ is all about. Just as Moses liberated the people from slavery in Egypt and guided them to a promised land, so Jesus will lead the people in a new exodus, one that moves us away from the death and destruction of empire and into a new era of the divine kingdom, exemplified by right relationships with God, the planet, with each other, and with ourselves. The first advent delivered a sign of tangible hope for people near and far. Judeans, Galileans, Persians. and God knows the region is in desperate need of that hope again today. I believe people are still hungry today for relief from tyrants, for relief from systems that seemingly only benefit certain groups of people. I believe that people desire a, king, a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom. I believe that people desire a benevolent king, a humble king, a king of shalom, and a kingdom where everyone flourishes in their relationships, where forgiveness takes precedence over retribution. There's a hunger in humanity for something more, a hunger that reminds us that another world is possible, that the kingdom can manifest wherever you are. It's a hunger that artists like Banksy portray as they, like stars, energize our resistance and offer direction to our deepest hopes. The star of the first advent connects to ordinary people and a hard political and economic landscape. It is for outsiders a guide to a newborn king, a reminder that if hope can be birthed in Judea, it can be both birthed in Persia too, and in the U.S, and in Bosnia, and in Russia, and in the Middle East and everywhere. Hope is possible. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Light of the world. I pray that you would illuminate in such a way that we would see clearly. I pray that you would illuminate in such a way that we would not see the other, but that we would see you, the Christ, in every person we come in contact with. Creator God, forgive us for participating in systems that choose to pick one side at the expense of another. Creator God, forgive us for being so quick to judge. Lord Jesus, when you walked this earth, you prayed, Father, may they be one as I am in you and you are in me. May they also be in us so that the world may believe. And so Spirit of God, I pray that you would unify us not to rally around a flag or a person or a system, but that you would unify us through the Christ in love in creativity and in forgiveness. May the seed of hope grow. May we never forget that another world is possible. Amen.